16. Leave what was left of the company, and while reconnoitering were cut off by the same fire, a stream of water four feet deep lay between them and their trenches. By standing in the stream, Lieutenant Gordon let the men crawl to the edge of the bank, where he lifted them across without their having to stand up and become targets. Corporal Emil Laurent, 5302 So, Dearborn Street, Chicago, a member of the 370th Infantry, had a busy time dodging machine gun bullets one night near Swasons, volunteering as a wire cutter. He crawled out with his lieutenant's automatic in one hand and the wire clippers in the other. Half a dozen machine guns were opened upon him as he sneaked along the terrain. Never touched me. He would yell every time a chunk of steel parted his hair. He was out for three hours and cut a broad line through the charged wire. Then he crawled back without a mark on him. Private Leroy Davis of the same regiment. Won a decoration at the Aolet Canal for bringing a comrade back under machine gun fire. When he got back to his own lines he would not trust him with the ambulance outfit but carried him three miles to the emergency dressing station and then he ran back to the canal to get even. This little stunt saved his comrade's life. Praise for the American soldier comes from Charles M. Schwab, the eminent steel manufacturer, who was chosen by President Wilson to head the emergency fleet corporation, and rendered such conspicuous service in that position. Returning in February, 1919, from a trip to Europe, Mr. Schwab said in an interview, I have come back with ten times the good opinion I had of our soldiers for the work they did. Everywhere I went I found that the American soldiers had left a good impression behind and there was nothing but the greatest praise for them. During the present voyage I have been among the colored troops on board and talked with them and learned what American soldiering has done for them. They are better men than they were when they went away. Chapter XXIV Those who never will return a study of war its compensations and benefits its ravages and debasements burdens fall upon the weak toll of disease Negroes singularly healthy Negroes killed in battle deaths from wounds and other causes remarkable physical stamina of race housekeeping in khaki H-A-L-T-H-I-S-T war in history increased regard for mothers an ideal for child minds morale and propaganda it has been said that war has its compensations no less than peace the saying must have had reference largely to the material benefits accruing to the victors the wealth gained from sacked cities, the territorial acquisitions and the increased prestige and prosperity of the winners. There is also an indirect compensation which can hardly be measured, but which is known to exist, in the increased courage inculcated, the banishment of fear, the strength and sense of devotion, heroism and self-sacrifice and all those principles of manliness and unselfishness which are inspired through war and react so beneficially on the morals of a race. There are some, however, who contend that these compensations do not overbalance the pain, the heart-rending, the horrors, brutalities and debasements which come from war, viewed in the most favorable light, with all its glories, benefits and compensations, war is still far removed from an agreeable enterprise. Like so many of the other material compensations of life, its benefits accrue to the strong while its burdens fall upon the weak. A contemplation of the maimed, the crippled and those stricken with disease, fails to engender anything but somber reflections, owing to the advancement of science, the triumph of knowledge over darkness, the late war through the unusual attention given to the physical fitness of the soldiers, probably conferred a boon in sending back a greater percentage of men physically improved than the toll of destroyed or deteriorated would show. Yet with all the improvement in medical and sanitary science, the fact remains that disease claimed more lives than bullets, bayonets, shrapnel or gas. 
Negro soldiers in the war were singularly free from disease. Deaths from this cause were surprisingly few, the mortality being much lower than it would have been among the same men had there been no war. This was due to the general good behavior of the troops as testified to by so many commanding officers and others. The men observed discipline, kept within bounds and listened to the advice of those competent to give it. Out of a total of between 40.000 and 45.000 Negro soldiers who went into battle or were exposed to the enemy's attack at some time, about 500 were killed in action. Between 150 and 200 died of wounds. Deaths from disease did not exceed 200 and from accident not over 50. Those who were wounded and gassed amounted to about 4.000. It speaks very highly for the medical and sanitary science of the army as well as for the physical stamina of the race. When less than 200 died out of a total of 4.000 wounded and gassed, the bulk of the battle casualties were in the 93rd Division. The figures as given do not seem very large. Yet it is a fact that the battle casualties of the American Negro forces engaged in the late war were not very far short of the entire battle casualties of the Spanish-American War. In that conflict the United States lost less than 1.000 men in battle, while battle havoc and ravages from disease were terrible enough, and brought sadness to many firesides, and while thousands of survivors are doomed to go through life maimed, suffering or weakened, there is a brighter side to the picture. Evidences are plentiful that housekeeping in khaki was not unsuccessful. According to a statement issued by the War Department early in 1919, the entire overseas army was coming back 18.000 tons heavier and huskier than when it went abroad. Many of the returning soldiers found that they literally burst through the clothing which they had left at home, compared with the records taken at time of enlistment or induction into the draft forces. It is shown that the average increase in weight was 12 pounds to a man. Improvement of course was due to the healthful physical development aided by the seemingly ceaseless flow of wholesome food directed into the training camps and to France. Secretary Baker was very proud of the result and stated that the late war had been the healthiest in history. The test he applied was in the number of deaths from disease. The best previous record, 25 per 1.000 per year was attained by the Germans in the Franco-Prussian War. Our record in the late war was only 8 per 1.000 per year. The medical corps did heroic service in keeping germs away. But cooks, clothing designers and other agencies contributed largely in the making of bodies too healthy to permit germ lodgments. The hell of war brought countless soldiers to the realization that no matter how much they believed they had loved their mothers, they had never fully appreciated how much she meant to them. I know. Mother. Cried one youth broken on the field whose mother found him in a hospital, that I began to see over there how thoughtless, indeed, almost brutal, I had always been, somehow, in spite of my loving you, I just couldn't talk to you, why, when I think how I used to close up like a clam every time you asked me anything about myself, he broke off and with fervent humility kissed the hand in his own, please forget it all, mother, he whispered, it's never going to be that way again. I found out over there I knew what it was not to have anyone do tell things to end now. Why you've got to listen to me all the rest of your life. Mother. Angelo Petri. The New York schoolmaster who has been so successful in instilling ideals into the child mind has addressed himself to the children of today. They who will be the parents of tomorrow. His words are, man has labored through the ages that you might be born free. Man has thought that you might live in peace. He has studied that you might have learning. 
he has left you the heritage of the ages that you might carry on. Ahead are the children of the next generation. It's on, on, you must be going, you, too, are torch bearers of liberty, you, too, must take your place in the search for freedom, the quest for the Holy Grail, t'was for this you, the children of America were born, were educated, fulfill your destiny, morale and propaganda received more attention in the late war than they ever did in any previous conflict, before the end of the struggle the subject of morale was taken up and set apart as one of the highly specialized branches of the service, the specialists were designated as morale officers, they had many problems to meet and much smoothing over to do. In the army, an Americanism very soon attached to them and they became known as fixers. With respect to the Negro, the section of the War Department presided over by Anna J. Scott was organized and conducted largely for purposes of morale and propaganda. Much of the work was connected with good American propaganda to counteract dangerous German propaganda. It is now a known fact that the foe tried to allure the Negro from his allegiance by lies and false promises even after he had gone into the trenches. This has been attested to publicly by Dr. Robert R. Moden, the head of Tuskegee Institute, who went abroad at the invitation of President Wilson and Secretary Baker to ascertain the spirit of the Negro soldiers there. Dr. Moten was told of the German propaganda and the brazen attempts made on members of the 92nd Division near Metz. He gave the following as a sample to the colored soldiers of the United States Army. Hello, boys, what are you doing over there, fighting the Germans? Why, have they ever done you any harm? Do you enjoy the same rights as the white people do in America, the land of freedom and democracy, or are you not rather treated over there as second-class citizens? And how about the law? Are lynchings and the most horrible crimes connected there with a lawful proceeding in a democratic country? Now, all this is entirely different in Germany where they do like colored people, where they treat them as gentlemen and not as second-class citizens. They enjoy exactly the same privileges as white men, and quite a number of colored people have fine positions in business in Berlin and other German cities. Why then fight the Germans? Only for the benefit of the Wall Street robbers and to protect the millions they have loaned the English, French and Italians? You have never seen Germany, so you are fools if you allow yourselves to hate us. Come over and see for yourselves. To carry a gun in the service is not an honor but a shame. Throw it away and come over to the German lines. You will find friends who will help you along. Negro officers of the division told Dr. Moten this propaganda had no effect. He said the Negroes, especially those from the South, were anxious to return home. Most of them imbued with the ambition to become full, law-abiding citizens. Some, however, were apprehensive that they might not be received in a spirit of company operation and racial goodwill. This anxiety arose mainly from accounts of increased lynchings and persistent rumors that the Ku Klux Klan was being revived in order, so the rumor ran, to keep the Negro soldier in his place. After voicing his disbelief in these rumors, Dr. Moten said, the result of this working together in these war activities brought the whites and Negroes into a more helpful relationship. It is the earnest desire of all Negroes that these helpful cooperating relationships shall continue. In conversation with a morale officer the writer was told that the principal problem with the Negroes, especially after the selective draft, was in classifying them fairly and properly. Some were in every way healthy but unfit for soldiers, others were of splendid intelligence and manifestly it was unjust to condemn them to the ranks when so many had excellent qualities for non-commissioned and commissioned grades. The service of supply solved the problem so far as the ignorant were concerned, all could serve in that branch. 
The officer stated that the trouble with the War Department and with too many other people, is the tendency to treat Negroes as a homogeneous whole, which cannot be done. Some are densely ignorant and some are highly intelligent and well educated. In this officer's opinion, there is as much difference between different types of Negroes as there is between the educated white people and the uneducated mountaineers and poor whites of the South, or between the best whites of the and other countries and the totally ignorant peasants from the most oppressed nations of Europe. In the early stages of the war, there was a great scarcity of non-commissioned officers sergeants and corporals, those generals in embryo, upon whom so much depends in waging successful war. It was a great mistake in the opinion of this informant, and he stated that the view was shared by many other officers, to take men from white units to act as non-commissioned officers in Negro regiments, when there were available so many intelligent, capable Negroes serving in the ranks, who understood their people and would have delighted in filling the non-commissioned grades. He also thought the same criticism applied to selections for commissioned grades. It is agreeable to note that such views rapidly gained ground. The excellent service of the old 8th Illinois demonstrated that colored officers are capable and trustworthy. An action and expression that will go far in furthering the view is that of Colonel William Hayward of the old 15th New York, who resigned command of the regiment which he organized and led to victory. Soon after his return from the war, like the great magnanimous, fair-minded man which he is and which helped to make him such a successful officer. He said that he could not remain at the head of the organization when there were so many capable Negroes who could and were entitled to fill its personnel of officers from Colonel Down. Colonel Hayward has been laboring to have the organization made a permanent one composed entirely of men of the Negro race. A portion of his expression on the subject follows, I earnestly hope that the state and city will not allow this splendid organization to pass entirely out of existence, but will rebuild around the nucleus of these men and their flags from which hang the Croix de Guerre, a 15th New York to which their children and grandchildren will belong, an organization with a home of its own in a big, modern armory. This should be a social center for the colored citizens of New York, and the regiment should be an inspiration to them. It should be officered throughout by colored men, though I and every other white officer who fought with the old 15th will be glad and proud to act in an honorary or advisory capacity. Let the old 15th carry on as our British comrades phrase it. It is to be hoped that we never had another war. Nevertheless these Negro military organizations should be kept up for their effect upon the spirit of the race. If they are ever needed again, let us hope that by that time, the confidence of the military authorities in Negro ability, will have so gained that they will coincide with Colonel Hayward's view regarding Negro officers for Negro units. Chapter XXV. Quiet Heroes of the Brawny Arm Negro Stevedore. Pioneer and labor units swung the axe and turned the wheel they were indispensable everywhere in France hewers of wood. Drawers of water numbers and designations of units acquired splendid reputation contests and awards pride in their service measured up to military standards Lester Walton's appreciation Ella Wheeler Wilcox's poetic tribute. Some went forth to fight, to win deathless fame or the hero's crown of death in battle. There were some who remained to be hewers of wood and drawers of water, which performed the greater service, for the direct uplift and advancement of his race, for the improved standing gained for it in the eyes of other races, the heroism, and steadfastness and the splendid soldierly qualities exhibited by the Negro fighting man, were of immeasurable benefit, those were the things which the world heard about. The exemplifications of the great modern forces and factors of publicity and advertising, in the doing of their, it, so faithfully and capably, 
the Negro combatant forces won just titled to all the praise and renown which they have received. Their contribution to the cause of liberty and democracy cannot be discounted, will shine through the ages, and through the ages grow brighter. But their contribution as fighting men to the cause of justice and humanity was no greater, in a sense than that of their brethren, and wept, and honored and insung, who twelve back of the lines that those at the front might have subsistence and the sinews of conflict. The most indispensable cog in the great machine which existed behind the lines, was the stevedore regiments, the butcher companies, the engineer, labor and pioneer battalions, nearly all incorporated in that department of the army technically designated as the SOS Service of Supply. In the main these were blacks. Every Negro who served in the combatant forces could have been dispensed with. They would have been missed, truly, but there were enough white men to take their places if necessary. But how seriously handicapped would the expeditionary forces have been without the great army of Negroes, numbering over 100.000 in France, with thousands more in this country designed for the same service, who unloaded the ships, felled the trees, built the railroad grades and laid the tracks, erected the warehouses, fed the fires which turned the wheels, cleared for the horses and mules and did the million and one things, which Negro brawn and Negro willingness does so acceptably. There's not to seek the bubble reputation at the cannon's mouth. That great composed and complaining body of men, content simply to wear the uniform and to know that their toil was contributing to a result just as important as the work of anyone in the army. Did they wish to fight? They did, just as ardently as any man who carried a rifle, served a machine gun or a field piece. But some must cut wood and eat of humble bread. And there came in those great qualities of patience and resignation which makes of the Negro so dependable an asset in all such emergencies. How shall we describe their chronology or write their log? They were everywhere in France where they were needed. As one officer expressed it, at one time it looked as though they would chop down all the trees in that country. Their units and designations were changed. They were shifted from place to place so often and given such a variety of duties it would take a most active historian to follow them. In the maze of data in the War Department at Washington, it would take months to separate and give an adequate account of their operations. Illustration, back with the heroic 15th 369th Infantry, Eli Udy, James Reese Europe's famous band parading up Illinois Avenue, Harlem, New York City, Eli Udy, Europe specially enlarged in left foreground. Illustration, Sergeant Henry Johnson standing with flowers, Negro hero of 369th Infantry. In New York Parade, he was the first soldier of any race in the American Army to receive the CROIX to GUERRE with Palm, Nidamaro Biardis, his fighting companion, in Inset, Illustration, Returning from the War, Musicians of 365th Infantry Leading Parade of the Regiment in Michigan Boulevard, Chicago, Illustration, Soldiers of 365th Infantry Marching Down Michigan Boulevard, Chicago. This regiment was part of the celebrated 92nd Division of Selective Draft Men. Illustration, the Seven Ages of Men. Curbstone groups in New York lined up to give the heroes welcome. The scenes were typical of many in cities and towns all over the country. Illustration, Colonel Franklin A. Dennison, former commander of 8th Illinois 370th Infantry. Invalid home from France July 12, 1918. Illustration, first commander of the 8th Illinois Infantry. Colonel John R. Marshall, who increased the organization from a battalion to a regiment, every officer and man a Negro, under call, Marshall the regiment saw distinguished service in the Spanish-American War, illustration, 
former officers of 370th Infantry Old 8th, left, Colonel Franklin A. Dennison, commander until July, 1918, center, Colonel T.A.R.O.B.R.D.'s White, succeeding commander, right, Eliudi, Colonel Otis B. Duncan, appointed colonel to succeed Colonel T.A.R.O.B.R.D.'s, illustration, Crowd on the lakefront in Chicago almost smothers returning soldiers of Fighting 8th, 370th Infantry. It is known that a contingent of them accompanied the very first forces that went abroad from this country. In fact, it may be said, that the feet of American Negroes were among the first in our forces to touch the soil of France. It is known that they numbered at least 136 different companies, battalions and regiments in France, if there were more. The records at Washington had not sufficiently catalogued them up to the early part of 1919 to say who they were. In the desire to get soldiers abroad in 1918, the policy of the administration and the department seems to have been to make details and bookkeeping a secondary consideration. The names of all, their organizations and officers were faithfully kept, but distinctions between whites and blacks were very obscure, until the complete historical records of the government are compiled. It will be impossible to separate them with accuracy. Negro non-combatant forces in France at the end of the war included the 301st, 302nd and 303rd Stevedore regiments and the 701st and 702nd Stevedore battalions, the 322nd and 363rd Butchery Companies, Engineer Service Battalions numbered from 505 to 550, inclusive, Labor Battalions numbered from 304 to 348 inclusive, also Labor Battalion 357, Labor Companies numbered from 301 to 324, inclusive, Pioneer Infantry Regiments numbered 801, 809, 811, 813, 815 and 816, inclusive, these organizations known as Pioneers, had some of the functions of infantry, some of those of engineers and some of those of labor units. They were prepared to exercise all three, but in France they were called upon to act principally as modified engineering and labor outfits. They also furnished replacement troops for some of the combatant units. Service was of the dull routine void of the spectacular, and has never been sufficiently appreciated. In our enthusiasm over their fighting brothers we should not overlook nor underestimate these. There were many thousands of white engineers and service of supply men in general but their operations were mostly removed from the base ports. Necessity for the work was imperative, owing to the requirements of the British Army. The Americans could not use the English Channel ports. They were obliged to land on the west and south coasts of France, where dock facilities were pitifully inadequate. Railway facilities from the ports to the interior were also inadequate. The American expeditionary forces not only enlarged every dock and increased the facilities of every harbor, but they built railways and equipped them with American locomotives and cars and manned them with American crews. Great warehouses were built as well as barracks, cantonments and hospitals. Without these facilities the army would have been utterly useless. Negroes did the bulk of the work. They were an indispensable wheel in the machinery, without which all would have been chaos or inaction. Headquarters of the service of supply was at Tours. It was the great assembling and distributing point, at that point and at the base ports of Brest. Bordeaux, St. Nazaire and Lopelis most of the Negro service of supply organizations were located. The French railroads and the specially constructed American lines ran from the base ports and centered at Tours. This great industrial army was under strict military regulations. Every man was a soldier. 
or the uniform and was under commissioned and non-commissioned officers the same as any combatant branch of the service. The Negro service of supply men acquired a great reputation in the various activities to which they were assigned, especially for efficiency and celerity in unloading ships and handling the vast cargoes of materials and supplies of every sort at the base ports. They were a marvel to the French and astonished not a few of the officers of our own army. They sang and joked at their work. The military authorities had bands to entertain them and stimulate them to greater efforts when some particularly urgent task was to be done. Contests and friendly rivalries were also introduced to speed up the work. The contests were grouped under the general heading of a race to Berlin and were conducted principally among the stevedores. Prizes, decorations and banners were offered as an incentive to effort in the contests. The name, however, was more productive of results than anything else. The men felt that it really was a race to Berlin and that they were the runners-up of the boys at the front. Ceremonies accompanying the awards were quite elaborate and impressive. The victors were feasted and serenaded. Many a stevedore is wearing a medal won in one of these conquests of which he is as proud, and justly so, as though it were a croix de guerre or a distinguished service cross. Many a unit is as proud of its banner as though it were won in battle. Thousands of service of supply men remained with the American Army of Occupation after the war, that island they occupied the same relative position as during hostilities behind the lines. The Army of Occupation required food and supplies, and the duty of getting them into Germany devolved largely upon the American Negro. Large numbers of them were stationed at Toul, Verdun, Aperne, St. Mihiel, Fismes and the Argonne where millions of dollars worth of stores of all kinds were salvaged and guarded by them. So many were left behind and so important was their work, that the Negro YMCA sent 15 additional canteen workers to France weeks after the signing of the armistice. As the stay of the service of supply men was to be indefinitely prolonged, the Ref. D.L. Ferguson, of Louisville, Key, who for more than a year was stationed at St. Nazaire as a YMCA worker, and became a great favorite with the men says that during the war they took great pride in their companies, their camps, and all that belonged to the army, that because their work was always emphasized by the officers as being essential to the boys in the trenches, the term, stevedore, became one of dignity as representing part of a great American army. How splendidly the stevedores and others measured up to military standards and the great affection with which their officers regarded them. Ref. Dr. Ferguson makes apparent by quoting Colonel C.E. Goodwin who for over a year was in charge of the largest camp of Negro service of supply men in France. In a letter to a ref, Dr. Ferguson he said, It is with many keen thrusts of sorrow that I am obliged to leave this camp and the men who have made up this organization. The men for whose uplift you are working have not only gained, but have truly earned a large place in my heart, and I will always cherish a loving memory of the men of this wonderful organization which I have had the honor and privilege to command. Lester A. Walton who went abroad as a correspondent for the New York Age, thus commented on the stevedores and others of the same service, I had the pleasure and honor to shake hands with hundreds of colored stevedores and engineers while in France. The majority were from the South, where there is a friendly, warm sun many months of the year. When I talked with them no son of any kind had greeted them for weeks. It was the rainy season when a clear sky is a rarity and a downpour of rain is a daily occurrence. Yet, there was not one word of complaint heard, for they were doing their bit as expected of real soldiers. Naturally they expressed a desire to get home soon, but this was a wish I often heard made by a doughboy, 
members of the SOS will not came back to America wearing the Distinguished Service Cross or the Croix de Guerre for exceptional gallantry under fire, but the history of the Great World War would be incomplete and lacking in authenticity if writers failed to tell of the bloodless deeds of heroism performed by non-combatant members of the American Expeditionary Forces. During the summer of 1918, Ella Wheeler Wilcox, the poetess, went to France to write and also to help entertain the soldiers with talks and recitations, while at one of the large camps in southern France, the important work of the colored stevedore came to her notice and she was moved to write a poem which follows, The stevedores we are the army stevedores, lusty and virile and strong, we are given the hardest work of the war, and the hours are long, we handle the heavy boxes and shovel the dirty coal, while soldiers and sailors work in the light, we burn below like a mole, but somebody has to do this work or the soldiers could not fight, and whatever work is given a man is good if he does it right, we are the army stevedores, and we are volunteers, we did not wait for the draft to come, and put aside our fears, we flung them away to the winds of fate at the very first call of our land, and each of us offered a willing heart, and the strength of a brawny hand, we are the army stevedores, and work we must and may. The cross of honor will never be ours to proudly wear and sway. But the men at the front could not be there, and the battles could not be won. If the stevedores stopped in their dull routine and left their work undone, somebody has to do this work, be glad that it isn't you. We are the army stevedores give us our due. Chapter XXVI And selfish workers in the vineyard mitigated the horrors of war at the front, behind the lines. That home circle for Negro War Relief addressed and praised by Roosevelt a notable gathering colored YMCA work UNSULLI record of achievement how the Y conducted business secretaries all specialists Negro women and Y work valor of a non-combatant. Negroes in America are justly proud of their contributions to war relief agencies and to the financial and moral side of the war. The millions of dollars worth of Liberty Bonds and War Savings Stamps which D.